Sidney Poitier and Tom Berenger track a killer. And Dennis Quaid tracks his own killer. Coming up next on Out of Touchdown. Sometimes life is hard. That was the, oh, what you would call them, the alt-country, the country-punk sounds of the late 80s band Timbuk3, who is featured in our second film today. I've been fortunate that my life hasn't been too hard, but my co-host Chad Smart across the table, he's led a hard life. It's been a hard knock life. But, you know, sometimes you, you get through the hard life just to find out that the future is bright. Ah, we will discuss Timbuk3 in detail with our second film. Again, my name is Mike Tikau. Thank you for tuning in to Out of Touchstone. Um, we are now into 1988. And as we discussed in the last episode, 1987 was a great year for Touchstone. Nine films, all comedies, many of them box office hits. But as we go into 1988, they try to venture out. It's, it's, they're going to go into their first set of thrillers. And, I mean, I guess in 1987... Uh, they did Stakeout, which was a comedy thriller, but there was more of an emphasis on the comedy, I guess. I, I think there was supposed to be some comedy in that, but uh, other than Emilio Estevez, Estevez, there's not a whole lot of comedic. It was more romantic. It was mm-hmm. a more rom-drom. And Richard Dreyfus rambling around and wearing, dressing in drag to get out of uh, somebody seeing him and running around a neighborhood. Comedy. Okay. Um, but now we go. So, like I said, we go into thrillers. Now with with in 1988, we'll just we'll go right into it. Our first film is uh, the return of a screen legend, and paired up with uh, a young up and coming star. And it's a movie called Shoot to Kill. From Touchstone Pictures, an unstoppable killer is on the loose. A killer no one has ever seen in a place no one has ever been. Jump! Enter FBI Special Expert Warren Stanton. This man is mine. It's the very best. Get down! Against the very worst. I'm going to pull the trigger! And only one will survive. Sidney Poitier, Tom Berenger. Let her go or die! Shoot to kill. Rated R. Starts Friday at a theater near you. Yes, it was released on February 12th, 1988, which is uh, President's Day weekend. Uh, Shoot to kill. As I said, it was the... Return of a screen legend. That's, of course, the great Sidney Poitier. But first, we've got to figure out, uh, we've got to put the script together and, the, and bring our director. The director was Roger Spottiswood. And if that name sounds familiar for Out of Touchstone listeners, he was the executive producer on Baby Secret of the Lost Legend after he originally was supposed to direct that movie and then backed out and just took an executive producer credit. That's who I thought you were talking about when you said a return of a screen legend. <laughs> Roger Spottiswood. The spot is wood. He's the legend. Yes. Um, his previous film before this was a, a TV movie in 1987 called The Last Innocent Man. I'm not overly familiar with that one. But the last theatrical release he had directed was in 1986. It was The Best of Times, which I believe is the Kurt Russell, Robin Williams 
where they're like a is that, high school. They replay a high school football game. Football game, right? That, yeah. Yeah. I never saw that, but I know. Uh, I, I watched it about a year ago. It's it's a movie. What you expect. Yeah. I did notice that uh, The Best of Times was released on the same weekend as Down and Out in Beverly Hills. Um, also, uh, we'll just get the James Bond connection out of the way because we mentioned it on the episode we talk about Baby. But in 1997, Roger Spottiswood would go on to direct Tomorrow Never Dies, which is that's a fun James Bond one with Pierce Brosnan. Um, okay, for the screenwriters, there's there's three writers who get credit. Uh, the first is Harv Zimmel, who also gets a story credit. So I'm assuming, like we see all the time, one guy gets the first story and then they, people just rewrite him from there. Um, it was his first and only feature credit. Uh, the only prior work he had done was one episode of MacGyver. Uh, the second writer is Michael Burton, who had co-written Flight of the Navigator for Disney uh, two years earlier. And again, just like I was saying, they probably were like, hey, we remember you from... From this other movie, why don't you come work on this great script we have about this guy's in the mountains. And then the final writer is Daniel Petrie Jr., who is a very prominent name in screenwriting. He's been had a long career. He had written A Beverly Hills Cop and also The Big Easy, which stars uh, the star of our second film we're going to discuss. And on an interesting note, uh, Daniel Petrie's father was a, a filmmaker as well, Daniel Petrie Sr., and he had directed Sidney Poitier in A Raisin in the Sun in 1961. Um, I was looking at, I found there's some screenwriting books. I'm not sure if you're familiar with uh, Sid Field, who's written just books about how to, how to sell your screenplay. And, and I, I found one online, and they had an interview with Daniel Petrie. He was talking a lot about uh, Shoot to Kill amongst his other credits. And I found a good quote, which kind of ties into this idea of having three writers on Shoot to Kill. And the quote is, quote, Everybody's rewritten in Hollywood, and sometimes you rewrite the person that rewrites you. And it stemmed from the fact that a director or studio or producer feels they want additional input from another writer. Sometimes they need the budget cut. Sometimes they want six more jokes, or the female star has too many good lines and the male star wants more. Whatever the reason, being rewritten in Hollywood is an accepted practice that doesn't make it any less painful, though. And I'm just, like I said, if you had to have three writers on a project like this where you're like, okay, the one guy clearly had the story, the second one was like, hey, we know you from Disney. And and then the, and the third one was like, oh hey, you got an Oscar nomination, or you were pretty prominent from writing Beverly Hills Cop, which was a big smash. Yeah. Well, I'm wondering Harv Zimmel because he only had one other credit, like you said. Uh, what was his profession before this? Because I could see like an ex-cop or ex-mountain ranger in this case writing, being like, oh, I've got this great idea, writes a story that isn't you know shootable or in proper script format, and then studio buys it brings in someone to polish it and makes it better. No, that makes perfect sense. Actually, funny you mentioned that, but Harv Zimmel was a, he did, he was a backpacker mm-hmm. and he'd made a lot of trips into the, into the Northwest mountains. And so maybe that's what it was. He was overly familiar with that, that, uh, that area, mm-hmm. I guess. Um, as we said, Sidney Poitier is back on the screen is his first acting role in 11 years. Uh, in the mid 1970s, he had directed and starred in a series of action comedies with opposite Bill Cosby and the last of which was a movie called A Piece of the Action, which was released in 1977. That was his last acting role. Um, a, few, a couple months later, actually, he would star in a movie, Little Nikita, with River Phoenix. Had you, have you, did you ever see that I've one? I've never seen it, but yeah, I, I'm familiar with the fact that the movie exists. Yeah, and then that, I mean, he only did a couple more roles after that. Uh, Sneakers, mm. and then The Jackal, the remake with Richard Gere and, and, and Bruce bl- Willis. I believe he directed a movie with... Bruce or with Bill Cosby after this? Oh yes, yes. You can we can save that for later. But uh, but in that eleven year gap, but from a piece of the action to shoot to kill, he did direct three films. 
uh, Stir Crazy, which was the Gene Wilder, Richard Pryor. The first movie to break a... The first movie directed by an African-American to make over $100 million at the box right? office. Okay. Uh, the second movie he did was Hanky Panky with Gene, Gene Wilder. Wilder. And the only reason I... The, the claim to fame of that movie, I don't know if you know it, the character that Gene Wilder plays in Hanky Panky... Sidney Poitier. His name is Michael Jordan. And it's like, I think, a year or two before Michael Jordan joins the NBA. Yeah. And then the last movie I never, I never heard of was called Fast Forward. And I think that was also in the late Oh, that's minutes. what they should have retitled Hello Again. <laughs> Zing! Um, and then opposite Sidney Poitier, you had Tom Berenger, who was a, like I said, was a rising star. He had had roles in The Big Chill. He had got an Oscar nomination for Best Supporting Actor for Platoon. And his previous movie was Someone to Watch Over Me, the Ridley Scott thriller. I put a little note in here. He did a very bizarre movie that I saw as a kid and loved. My dad loved it. It's called Rustler's Rhapsody. And I don't know if you're familiar with that one or not, but it's a spoof of, like, singing cowboy movies. And he he, he has this thing where he doesn't he, – he, he won't shoot – when he shoots bad guys, he only shoots them in the hand. So there's this scene where he's doing target practice and all the targets are little hands – and then, of course, the villain in the movie. There's always a villain in the in those westerns. The villain in Rustler's Rhapsody is played by Andy Griffith, which is just so funny as far as playing against type. Well, did you ever see Spy Hard? Oh, he's the, that's right. He's the villain in that, too, isn't he? Yeah. yeah. But I would I would recommend... I, I wonder if it holds up, because it's been 30 mm-hmm. years. Uh, if Rustler's Rhapsody. Uh, Mary Lou Henner plays like the, the love interest as well. But uh, And then finally, from uh, Kirstie Alley was... was had a supporting, strong supporting role in this film. She's mostly known for television, and she had just, that season, joined the cast of Cheers. Mm-hmm. So if you look back, three of the last four Touchstone movies, Hello Again, Three Men and a Baby, and Now Shoot to Kill, starring cast members from Cheers. Just small world. When, when are we going to get the Cliff Clavin movie? Maybe there's some coming up. Maybe. I don't know. Maybe George Wint has a small part I mean, in one of You've got to think Woody Harrelson's got to show up at some point in and Touchstone. Yeah, you're right. We say that now, yeah. but let's. I wonder. I wonder. Um, Kirstie Alley, of course, even though she had most, mostly done television, she had starred as. She had been a Vulcan in Star Trek II. Uh, Runaway, which I think we've discussed on the show before. I love that. Tom Michael, Selleck, yeah. Tom Selleck, Michael Crichton. I, I always liked that movie. And then I love Summer School. It's a classic. That's a good one. Um, if, you just, if you want to get into the movie itself, I, I just the first thing that gets you in this movie is the whole. Oh, oh. Let me. I'm going to throw you. I'm going to start the conversation off. Um, had you seen this movie before? I'd never even heard of this movie before. I'm going to take that as a no, then. Yes. yes. Were you familiar with it? I, I know of the film. I had not really? seen it. Okay. So I would say looking into this film as without knowing anything about it, did you have... What expectation did you have going into this film? Um, I mean, this is one of those ones that... Like we, we, I know we've talked about it before, but it's a kind of like one of the movies that I started this podcast for. Give me a chance to discover something I wasn't overly familiar with. And I think I mentioned it to you off the air, but I made the mistake of reading a review of the film. There's a website called DVD Talk that I like to read that I will actually will tell you what's, what, what the bonus features are on DVDs, and it kind of reviews them. And the person who did the review of Shoot to Kill for DVD Talk was just gushing about it and said not only is it one of the best action movies of the 80s it's one of the best movies of the 80s and so that kind of got built up a lot i'm a big i didn't really enjoy tom berenger's work and i'd heard kirstie alley was supposed to be good in it so it, it seems like 
if I didn't know of the movie beforehand, as I slowly kind of got into it, it was like I started hearing a lot of good things about mm-hmm. it. So you said my, my expectations set up maybe a little bit because I was I thought well, everyone seems to be saying this is a great hidden gem, and and I. Yeah, it is. I mean, to be honest, spoiler before we get to our our final tally, but it's it's a very good movie. And like I said, it starts off, and I mean, we've seen police procedurals before. And what I thought was really interesting about this movie is that it starts off with this extended scene involving a hostage negotiation, and Sidney Poitier's got to get in there to try to save the day. And you know, usually you see those scenes in the they last maybe five or ten minutes. And we saw it in Stakeout, kind of, right? Well, I guess the opening scene was the jailbreak. Hmm. But we see, the first time we see the cops, they're, you see them in action. They have some shenanigans. They get the guy. Or no, they don't get the guy, right? But no, because he comes back later to, to reveal, say, hey, he's a cop. Spoiler. Yeah. Not a good third act in that film. Yeah. And so that's kind of what you have with this one. Is What you don't have with this one, I should say, is that it's not a quick little resolution. The scene goes on for like almost 15, 20 minutes. And as it turns out that the killer that he's trying to track down in the beginning of the scene, that ends up being the antagonist for this film mm-hmm. as a whole, which I thought that was a really good, that's really good plotting. It wasn't, we didn't just get to see Sidney Poitier do a little bit. Okay, here's his daily life. Here's what he goes through. It's like, no, no, you're already into the story. Now. I didn't see that coming. Yeah. I thought this opening was really well done and basically going to repeat what you just said. It sets the movie up well and it is different and it also does a good job of concealing the identity of of the murderer. Yes. You know, and as we'll talk about here and later, it that was purposely done and I think very I when we talked about I think it's going back to baby, we're gonna reference baby a lot on this episode. Hey, same Thank director, you. it's okay. Yeah. But you know, you had mentioned that Sean Young her name was in the credits. Your wife was a little confused because she wasn't familiar with Sean Young and being like, hey, when does this guy show up when he's, you know. And then there was another movie that had, uh, oh, Three Men and a Baby. Nancy Travis is in the credits. She yes. doesn't show up until like the last 20 minutes of the movie. Mm-hmm. Tom Berenger is all over the poster, all over, you know, the main titles or main credits for this film. I was expecting him to be the killer based on this opening scene oh. because he doesn't come in for so long. I'm very glad that that was not the case. It, like, it subverted the expectations. Oh, sure. Yeah. And then, I mean, from a cop movie standpoint, I'm really surprised you don't see, you don't see Sidney Poitier's, like, home life. I mean, there's, there's a scene where he is on the phone and he's talking to, like, a girlfriend or something and he's talking about, like, a dinner reservation. But you don't get to see that, that standard. Like, I think what it is is, you know, we, we see these a lot in cop movies because we want to humanize them. Mm-hmm. And that way we want to, I guess, feel as though they're, if they're at risk trying to hunt down the, uh, their, the bad guy, you want them to be like, oh, well, he has to make it because he's got a kid and a, and a wife at home. Yeah. And so, yeah, they don't really, it's, he's just like almost like a career cop, and he, or he's an FBI agent, mm-hmm. I should say. And so they, they don't even dwell on, you don't even see the, the, his love interest on the screen. You just hear her voice. Um, and speaking of, you know, from a cop movie standpoint, like you said, it's a, more or less, like you said, Tom Berenger doesn't show up until later when Sidney Poitier gets up to the Northwest. And I'll just throw in real quick, because I watched this on DVD. I believe you did as well. Yes. The DVD that version that I watched, for some reason, skipped a chapter. <laughs> and so my first introduction to Tom Berenger was a scene on the horses. So after he's already been introduced. Okay. And I mean, it, granted, it's not that deep of a film that I couldn't get caught up. But it was just very odd to see, like, 
all of a sudden, here's Tom Berenger, and they're acting like they know each other, and they're going off. But that's yeah. funny because because honestly, the the first scene when they're together, there's it builds up a lot of great dramatic tension between the two. Hmm. There ain't no elevators out there, Mister. No cable cars, no buses, no damn taxi cabs. So why don't you settle your ass at the motel, and I'll do what I do best. Mr. Knox, you've got one choice, and one choice only. That is to guide me into those mountains. That is the one way, the only way, you will be permitted to help your friend. You're not a vigilante. You will be acting under my authority, under my orders. Question so far? Good. And I don't give a rat's ass whether you like it or not. You try going after this guy alone, and your ass will be in jail so fast your head will spin. And as you talked about with the the scene on the horse, I thought that was actually what I really enjoyed about this movie. There's a great chemistry between uh, Poitier and Tom Berenger, but I like that they also put in some comedic touches, usually involving animals or nature. Mm. There's this, you know, there's a scene when when Sidney Poitier is trying to get on the horse. And he can't get on, and he try, or tries to get the horse to leave later, and then he, he won't leave. Mm. Uh, there's a great scene when they're they're in a cabin, and Sidney Poitier opens the door, and there's just a moose standing there looking at him. And then Tom Berger shows up later and says, "Hey, did you see the moose?" You know. And then there's a there's a final scene toward the end where they encounter a bear, and Tom Berger's like, "Quick, we got to run!" And Sidney Poitier just sort of does the thing you're supposed to do with bears, right? We just make act, yourself look make bigger, yourself big, right? Yeah. Well, and his line in that moment was also very well. The, where he says, you know, everyone else up here, because they're in the Pacific Northwest. I don't know if we mentioned the location, but uh, he's like, everyone else up here acts like they've never seen a black man. Why should the bear be any different? Yes, that's right. That's right. Yes. And as Chad mentioned, the Pacific Northwest, I, this gorgeous location photography. I'm, again, I'm really impressed. We had a, There was a stretch there, I think, in 1986 where a lot of the touchstone movies were shot in Los Angeles. Now they're just, maybe the budgets are getting better. We're going on location. This Vancouver is, is the place to be. Yeah, that was 30 years ago, right? Now Everything's done in Vancouver now, but I wonder if this was what kind of started it off, I guess. Um, unfortunately, because it's a cop movie and there's a mystery, I thought there was a lot of, there's a lot of, like, ominous music. I mean, when my wife and I were watching it, she even joked, like, uh-oh, there must be something going on bad because there's this weird music cue and this is going to be where the bad guy shows up and it's all these weird close-ups and it, it's you can't help but have all these random red herrings to try to get the get the audience off. Not to mention the fact that, like you said, as we get to with the, the fishing party that the killer joins in when he's up into the mountains that we still don't know who he is and so they have to set up each of the people in the party is is it him is it him is it him that was a little corny but but i think it's well done with blending again not showing you the character going into the party so when they finally when you finally see the party you don't know which actor it is Mm -hmm. and uh i mean obviously we all know minor spoiler it's not richard mazer because it can't be. he can't be. He was the dad and license to drive. He's not killing people. If he if he let Corey Haim take the car to go impress Mercedes while he walked home with all the diapers and still didn't kill less, then he's okay. <laughs> um, and then one of the last notes I have on it in the movie is just... It always gets me sometimes with these cop movies is they... They're they're bumbling. They're they're like mm-hmm. Keystone cops. And there there's a scene when when uh, the killer is trying to pretend that he's not listening in on the radio when Christy Alley is talking to the cops on the radio. And then 
and then she says, oh, I'm all alone. And the cops are like, great, we're going to give you our whole plan, even though that the killer's probably within earshot. And you're like, come on. I mean, you'd think that maybe maybe 30 years ago that's what the police methods were like. I don't know. I mean, unless you set up that the police officer is a complete bumbling idiot, like that that part did take me out of the film a little bit because you're like... Okay. Why would he do that? Yeah. Why would you help out the person like that? I mean, I guess it's maybe that's how crafty our killer was. But I will say, you know, the film really is really held up all by the performances of the two leads. Mm -hmm. I mean, they're they're both fantastic. I'm not overly. I mean, I've not. I've seen a handful of Sidney Poitier movies, and like I said, I do enjoy Tom Berenger's work. But the two of them together, like I said, there's a lot of tension between the two. I like how they can each teach, learn something from each other. And every time they really get upset with each other, it seems to be resolved fairly quickly because it just shows you the strength of these two actors. You ever killed a man? You ever break up a bank robbery? I'm 22 years in the FBI, Knox. I've come up against the mafia, the Ku Klux Klan, the KGB. Understand me, I'm qualified to go after this guy. You think you are, but you're not. Yeah, Mike, you know that line that we just heard Sidney Portier say. He's referencing all the other films that, from his film library of the people that he has actually gone up against sure. in previous characters. So uh, I'm going to guess that wasn't in Harv Zimbel's original screenplay. Probably not. Uh, one thing about this movie, we were talking, you know, the bumbling cops and, and the cop drama, and the tropes or whatnot. But this movie came out in 1988, a year after Lethal Weapon would have done bananas at the box office. Mm-hmm. So I think we're starting to see probably a lot more buddy cop Films, I mean, obviously, sure. stake out in '87 as well. But so this is at that starting point where you know you can't accuse Touchstone of uh, starting the trend. But sure. were they just jumping in? Did you know? Is that what attracted them to the script? I wonder. Yeah, and that's one of the things that I, that I really enjoyed about the film, as compared to some of those the comedies mm-hmm. or the buddy cop ones, is that it really puts an emphasis on police procedure. Mm-hmm. You know, and you and and I and I, the same thing was kind of like with Stakeout. Like Stakeout was supposed to be the silly comedy, but you're like, okay, they really take their time with the with the staking out, and you see the different methods that the that the police go through because I, I you makes you wonder these aren't just local cops hunting a bad guy. This is a FBI agent going across state lines, right? Because mm-hmm. I think the movie begins in it's Beverly Hills or something like that, or is it San Francisco? San Francisco, I believe. Yeah, yeah. and he's like, okay, now i got to go up to Seattle and go up in the Northwest. And so you try to get to Canada. Yeah. yeah, and then this idea, of, okay, well, now we have to use the local law enforcement. Oh, and then we have Tom Berenger, who's a mountain man. Oh, we, didn't men- we haven't mentioned this yet, but in the movie, Kirstie Alley, who's leading the fishing party through the woods, she is dating Tom Berenger, so that gives him an extra motivation to want to go. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, well, they, that, emphasis on the methods, I should say. Yeah, and that's your, you're talking about Sidney, Sidney Poitier's home life that we don't see, but you get the Tom Berenger aspect who throw in that personal connection of why they have to save. And, and yeah, it's, it's funny. You mentioned the whole tracking the killer down aspect of this film. One of the, one of the main criticisms that I've seen in other reviews is the fact that Sidney Portier is the only FBI agent on the case. Like they don't send in a whole group of people to, you know, I guess, uh, I guess there's a lot going on. Maybe they were still looking for DB Cooper in that area. Or like you said, it's because he had that experience at the beginning yeah. of the movie. And one of the, and again, one of the best parts of the screenplay, I think, is, you know, the first act is is Sydney kind of in the city, 
The second act is them going to the mountains. And then the third act is the killer has gotten out of the mountains and is now back in the city of Vancouver. And so Tom Berenger's mountain uh, instincts aren't going to go and aren't going to really help now. And so now you got to go Sydney because it's so it's so easy for for to make a movie with a city and a country cop and a city cop. And then the country cop's like, well, once you're here, this is what it, what's what it's like here. And then he gets the the gets to be the top dog. And but whereas with this one, it's like, oh, wait a minute. They're both equally effective at what they do because once the killer gets out of the mountains and into the city, now you're on Sydney's turf and he kind of knows how to deal with the local enforcement to, to track him yeah. down. Yeah, and I do, I will say that the, I guess the climax of the film kind of suffers. Um, yeah. But but up till then, it's a, it, it's a fun ride. Yeah, and I think that's something we always talk about with the, the Touchstone Touch. One of the things that, I, that bothered me, and I think you mentioned it as well, is the, the 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 final scene is a little more violent, a little little more blood and gore than I was expecting from. I mean, I don't know if Touchstone needed to put that in there. They could just have people shooting. You don't need to have it be as, as graphic. Graphic, and it's also kind of like the, the kind of like the cop, you know, revealing the plan over the over the radio. The amount of gunshots taken by a person at the end of this film and still keeps on fighting like um, and a six shot revolver i yeah. think they both have <laughs> may mm, oh, oh okay we'll go with it just because you've led us this far into a good yeah. film but but yeah. I, yeah and again this is we mentioned it's a thriller it's r-rated so this is kind of right up this is perfect for touchstone if disney wants to put out a movie like this and it's a good movie i mean yes yeah. there are adult overtones there's sort of like a quasi rape scene mm-hmm. in the in the cabin with the the killer um, and it does have some sort of cliches, but I think they did a good job. I think they did a good job of, of, of making this movie. And I'll just go right into my, on a scale of one to 10, I give it a solid eight. I mean, like, as I mentioned, it's a great film. It's got great performances and it also allows the, the script allows time for the mystery and the characters to develop. I was really impressed with this movie Maybe because I didn't have the great expectations. Like you said, I didn't really know a whole lot about mm-hmm. it. And I just said, Oh, this is going to be some, cop movie all right let's watch this and i was pleasantly surprised well i would also give this movie probably at 7.5 to an 8 really enjoyed it but somebody who probably would not give it that is the la times and i find giving our discussion here i find this review even more entertaining so this is from the original la times review of shoot to kill if anyone cared to chart the impoverished impoverished state of big commercial american in the late 1980s a perfect place to begin would be with Shoot to Kill. It has an accomplished director, a high-caliber cast, and an enviable list of technicians, and it has less substance than a fast-food menu. The film, which bears the unmistakable mark of a touchstone product, the movie is grisly, illogical, contradictory, borderline tasteless, riddled with plot holes, and at the same time, decently photographed, cleanly edited, and crisply directed. Did he see a different movie? I don't I, know. I, riddle with plot holes. I, I don't know about that. Well, I think it's the cop, the cop at the with the radio. That's but I, again, that's one I, scene. I can li- I can live with it. You know, I, I and I don't have the uh, the critic's name, so I can't see who to blame. Yeah. But uh, yeah, no, that's an interesting. I and again, we saw this movie thirty years after it came out, yeah. so maybe perceptions or expectations of what film is have changed uh, would, would you have enjoyed this movie more or less if you'd have seen it when it first came out probably less because yeah. i don't think i would have, i mean when this movie came out i would have been 14 in high school right? yeah so i don't you know i would have been going back to summer school 
and being like, yes, Chainsaw and Dave, that's what I want to watch. And the, and the buddy cop movies that I would have enjoyed in that time would have been Lethal Weapon, probably, oh. right? And so it's funny. I always like to look and, and see whether was there a potential for a sequel or a remake. And I'll be honest with you, I'm surprised there hasn't been one. Like, uh, it's e- this is an easy plot that you could use... Even if it's not, you know, if you reverse the roles, maybe the country cop goes into the city or something. But, yeah, I mean, it's, it's the, the framework is there. I could see them doing it. And that's remake. why I would say, you know, it probably has been, air quoted, remade because it is such a simplistic, simplistic plot that, yeah. you know, maybe there is a movie out there that has a lot of similarities to this one. Maybe. Um, from a trivia standpoint, uh, I did see that the film was originally set up at Columbia Pictures, and the, the working title was "In the Hall of the Mountain King." I'm so glad they they did too not long go for a marquee. Well, also, and it's the, it's the, it's the name of that famous uh, piece of music from Grieg, mm. the the Pier Gant Suite, and you know what? You, we've all heard. Everybody listening to this podcast right, right now has heard "In the Hall of the Mountain King." Google it when I'm when you get off the show, and you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. Um, the title was then shortened to "Mountain King." And then eventually it became Shoot to Kill. Uh, but not in the UK, who changed the title to Deadly Pursuit, because there had been a recent uh, massacre in the town of Hungerford, and they felt that it was insensitive to use the word shoot in the title. Because I don't know if you saw, when I was looking for trailers yeah. uh, on YouTube, I saw a lot of Deadly Pursuit, and I'm like, okay, I don't know that one. Um, I thought it was a funny note that the Los Angeles Times reported that the Royal Canadian Mountie, Mountain Police, the Mounties, they were asked for cooperation during filming, but they declined based on the illegal activities in the film and the representation of the RCMP as, quote, bungling idiots, as we talked about. That's funny. And so they actually revised the script and made up a new group name for the cops. They were called the British Columbia Provincial Police, a fictitious organization. The hashtag BCPPs. That could have, that could have been their thing back then. Um, as we mentioned... There's a very famous trivia factoid which says that, you know, to keep the audience guessing as to who was the killer in the fishing party, the actors that were cast, the five actors for that party, were all known for playing villains in other films. And so I'm going to take a moment, and we're going to look at the five of them. Mm-hmm. And to keep everybody guessing as well, I'm just going to list them alphabetically by their last name. So the first one is Clancy Brown, who is, is a great actor. Mm-hmm. Everybody knows yeah. Clancy Brown. You've probably seen him. He had played a sadistic inmate in the Sean Penn juvie movie uh, Bad Boys. Mm-hmm. He was the Kurgan in Highlander, and he's you know lengthy career. He'd done the Shawshank Redemption. I know him most recently. He's done a lot of voiceover work. He, he he's voices one of the characters on uh, the Venture Brothers, which is an animated show that my wife and I dearly dearly love. So he's the first one. Second one is Frederick Coffin. Another name you recognize all five faces when you watch this movie. I think so. Um, he played a killer in the horror film Mother's Day in 1980. And he's also played a lot of cop roles afterwards, including he was Officer Koharski in Wayne's World, mm. you know, in the scene in the diner. Mm. Um, as Chad mentioned, Richard Masur. I, again, he's, he's, he's a dad. He, I, I, I don't think of him as the bad guy, but apparently 10 years earlier, in 1978, he played a drug dealer in the movie Cool Stop the Rain. Um, of course, he was in, also in The Thing and Risky Business. He was the sheriff in My Science Project, another Touchstone film. And he played a dad in the Mr. Boogity movies, which were the Disney Sunday movies, which uh. are now on Disney+. Plus. And I'm curious. Those scared me when I was a kid, so I might try and watch it maybe this Halloween yeah, or something. Yeah, I, I thought you said Mr. Boogaloo there for a second, <laughs> and then I was going back to the apple. Reference the apple. Uh, but like you said, Richard Mr. it's just dads and cops. That's his thing. Uh, Andrew Robinson 
is the next man. He played the Scorpio Killer in Dirty Harry. So that was, but that was 1971. We're 17 years on. A uh, lot of TV and stage work in the 70s and 80s. Also, he was the director of the MFA acting program at USC. And then finally, Kevin Scannell, who he, I know him mostly from comedies. If you look, you see his face, you're like, oh, that guy. He had uh, done a, years of doing television, and this was actually his first theatrical film role. So that's why I'm like, okay. We go back to this idea that these guys were all cast for playing villains in other films. But if you look, you know, other than Clancy Brown, it's been, we're talking 8, 10, 12, in, in Andrew Robinson's case, 17 years since they've been a villain. So I don't know. Is it just a little funny note that you can put on the marketing materials? Yeah, I, I think it's something where it's more going with character actors who, yeah. it's kind of like when Deliverance was made. Even though all those stars are now huge stars, at the time they were up and comers or nobodies because oh, yeah. they were all cast because they didn't want names because they didn't want you to know who was safe. Sure. So I think this is more of let's get people that you may recognize, but you're not going to know. You know, immediately who it yeah, is. Yeah, you're not yeah. going to put Tom Berenger in there. Well, yeah, I mean, wouldn't have fooled you, yeah. I guess. Um, the last note I have, just a little funny little anecdote, was that Sidney Poitier himself served on the board of directors of the Walt Disney Company from 1995 to 2003. So it all comes back. I wonder if he had such a great experience working with Touchstone in 1988 that he said, I'm going to work with them again. Um, okay, so let's just look at the box office. Um, like I said, it was released on President's Day weekend, and it finished second with $5.78 million. The uh, first place was Good Morning Vietnam. The, the movies that also opened the same weekend were Action Jackson with Carl Weathers. I like my ribs barbecued. I've never seen it. Is That's that the only it? line I know. <laughs> After he flamethrowers somebody. <laughs> oh, God. Um, Satisfaction, the Justine Bateman, Julia Roberts, Liam Neeson Eason? movie. I, and then School Days, the Spike Lee joint. Um, interestingly enough, Three Men and a Baby finished fourth at the box office that opening weekend. So I know we've talked about touched on having two movies in the top five. I think it happened with Tough Guys and A Color of Money. I know it happened with Stakeout and Can't Buy Me Love. And, of course, it happened several times with Three Men and a Baby and Good Morning Vietnam. But if you look at this weekend, for a four-year-old movie studio, they have three of the top four movies at the box office. And I wonder what their scheduling um, procedure was. Like, why did they choose to release movies that were going to be overlapping and be fighting for the same audience? But, again, back at this time... Movies stayed in theaters a lot longer. That's so. the key. Like, I mean, did they realize Three Men and a Baby was still going to be in theaters three and a half months later? Yeah. You know, and again, they had a they had a comedy, they had a comedy drama in Good Morning Vietnam, and they had a straight thriller. So give them credit. Uh, it stays at number two in the second week, and then it drops to number three in its third week after with the release of the Harrison Ford Roman, Roman Polanski thriller Frantic. And then it slides down as the month of March rolls around, and it winds up with $29.3 million in six weeks on a budget of uh, only $15 million. Uh, finally, I always like to look at awards consideration. The film got a Best Picture nomination at the NAACP Image Awards, which it lost to the movie Coming to America. And then Sidney Poitier also gets a Best Actor nomination at the NAACP Image Awards, and he loses to Denzel Washington in Cry Freedom. Oh, yeah. Weather looks better. I think we should be able to make up some time. Thanks for helping me. I don't mention it. How do you feel? How do I look? My great-granddaddy was 87 when he died. 
And I'll always remember seeing him in his coffin. So? Well, he looked a damn sight healthier three days dead than you do now. <laughs> yeah, Mike, that's... I think we've summed it up with Shoot to Kill. It's time to move on to the next film. And you know Hollywood always loves a good remake. And back in the... I believe it was 1949, there was a movie called DOA, which Hollywood decided to remake, and they called the movie DOA. From Touchstone Pictures, 24 hours ago, Dexter Cornell had a good job, an attractive wife, and a successful writing career. He also had an enemy. It's poison, Dex. There's nothing we can do. Now, 24 hours is all he has left. Surprised to see me up and about. 24 hours to solve his own murder. Why did you murder me? Dennis Quaid, Meg Ryan. You don't look so good. I've had a rough day. DOA, rated R. Starts Friday, March 18th at a theater near you. Yes, the aptly titled DOA. Released on March 18th of 1988. As Chad mentioned, it was a remake of the film noir classic starring Edmund O'Brien. Great, great actor from back in the day. Um, the original film is only 83 minutes, and it's much tighter pacing. It's got a more, I thought it was a more gripping story, although it's a little more convoluted and hard to follow. Chad and I both watched the film. It's streaming on Amazon Prime, yeah. the original one. Yeah, it's, it's a good film, but take notes and get your flowchart going with all the aliases that they throw out and the names, and, and I still don't fully understand why things happen the way they did, but all I know is, uh, you know, the next time you're at the uh, at the store and you buy something and they ask you if you want a receipt, maybe say no. <laughs> maybe say no. That's all I'm going to say. But So then, the so like I said, the film has been actually been redone, I think, a couple other times, and itself, I believe, there was, it was based on a movie from the 30s, um, but this version of the film was was in the works as early as 1980. There were articles in the in the trades in 1980, 1981, talking about it being possibly in development. But it didn't really gather momentum until 1987. And uh, they bring in the the directors of the film are actually co-directors. They're, they're a married couple, Annabeth Jenkel and Rocky Morton. And they were mostly done music videos. And they also created Max Headroom. This was their first. Uh, feature and we we talk about with Touchstone like I give them credit for taking chances on up and coming. Usually it's up and coming writers, mm-hmm. but to, a first time director who is known for, known, for, known for doing music videos and a very I think groundbreaking TV show, right? Cutting edge. Well, I'm trying to think of the Max Headroom show because I I know I watched episodes, but I wasn't a loyal viewer and. I'm trying to think of how popular that show was and how popular, like, because Max Headroom, I believe, was an advertising character before the show. Or did he become, like, advertiser after? Yeah, it's hard to kind of go to look at the the chronology of it. It's like, it was first, it was a a British TV movie, and then it was a pilot. And then it was like a talk show, and then they used them for Coke, oh. and or and then and then it was then it was a, then it was a TV show in America, but it was British produced, and they ran for two seasons, but they only had I think like maybe 15, eighteen or twenty episodes total, mm-hmm. and so yeah, I, I remember the phenomenon. I, I remember I always remember um, when I was in sixth grade, we went to summer camp, and we had this contest amongst all of our all of the class, uh, the students in the class, to design like a uh, artwork that was going to be on the folders that we all have to carry around with our itineraries in camp. And somebody had drawn Max Headroom and, and, and then just said, I'm so excited to go to summer camp. And everyone, he voted for that. And our teacher wouldn't let us use it because he was like, this has nothing to do 
with summer camp. And so they we, put, we chose a different picture that had a kid like swimming and hiking and, and making s'mores. But this dude had drawn Max Hedrum. That's where my my image of Max Hedrum disappears. And do you know? The Chicago connection with Max Headroom, where there was like a pirate radio bro- or pirate broadcast where they tapped into it. Yeah, Max Head- some guy with the Max Headroom mask tapped into WGN. Yeah, no one knows who it was to this day. Thirty something years yeah. later, no one. Knows you know why? Them. Because they didn't get Sidney Portier and Tom Berenger on the trail to track them down. City cop, country cop, one of them will find them. Um, as I mentioned, yeah, we've we taken a chance on up-and-coming people. The screenwriter was Charles Edward Pogue. He only had two film credits, and they were both from 1986. Psycho 3 and David Cronenberg's The Fly. So another one of those guys that's kind of up-and-coming. And he's good with remakes, apparently. Yeah, there you go, exactly. Or sequels, I guess. Psycho 3. Well, and there are, so then our, the main cast, it's, it's basically Dennis Quaid and Meg Ryan. Uh, Dennis Quaid, I, I wanted to make sure that I made a note of the age difference, you know, just because Meg Ryan is 26 years old when she makes the film and plays a college freshman, and Dennis Quaid is 34, and he's, I mean, I guess you could be a 34-year-old college professor, who's, but he's written books and all this stuff. Um, he was, Dennis Quaid was actually carving out a pretty nice career for himself in the 1980s. I mean, he'd done Jaws 3D. That's all you could stop right there. <laughs> that movie's on your resume, you're gold. And then he does the right stuff. Uh, Dreamscape. Enemy Mine, The Big Easy. I didn't realize this. I know you mocked uh, The Big Easy in one of our earlier episodes for his Cajun accent. Yeah. But he actually won the Best Actor Independent Spirit Award for The Big Easy. He didn't win Best Accent. I'll tell you that much. <laughs> and so he was coming on two movies in 1987. Inner Space, still one of my favorite movies ever. I saw that in the theater as a kid. Uh, and a movie called Suspect, which is, uh, I think it's a courtroom drama with Cher. Not overly familiar with that. I mean, I never, never saw it. I mean, I remember hearing about it. Yeah. And then Meg Ryan herself, she was a star on the rise. She had she had just done Top Gun. She had been in Armed and Dangerous. She, had, of course, had also been in Inner Space. And her previous film role was uh, a movie which was released in January of 1988. It was a movie called Promised Land. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know that one. Yeah, and prior to Top Gun, she was on an episode of Charles in Charge. I'm somehow, I, I didn't think you did slip that one by here. Mm. Yes. Um, so as far as the movie itself, I, I give them credit. I knew going in that this was supposed to be like incredibly stylish. I think we both, uh, I got the DVD from the public library, and I think the blurb on the front was like, very stylish, noir, and stuff. And you're, you're dealing with the, the people who created Max Headroom, which was all about style. Mm-hmm. Um, the very first thing you see in the, in the remake is the Touchstone logo is black and white. Mm-hmm. And then when the, when the, when the uh, lightning bolt hits... On the logo, there's like a thunderclap behind it. So I'll give him credit. It has the exact same opening as the original film, which is uh, our hero walking to the police station to report a murderer. Whose murderer? My murderer. And as soon as he gets into the police interrogation room, it's there's video cameras. The color is all saturated. Again, it's they, they're trying. I, I want to give them credit for trying something different, especially if you're going to remake a movie, but it was almost a little bit too stylish, I thought. A little style over substance. Well, that, that's what we call the 80s. <laughs> to an extent. I mean, you know, I don't remember a lot of our favorite movies. You know, you talk about like something like Breakfast Club or even Can't Buy Me Love. It's not you know, overly stylish, but I, I give them credit because, I mean, that was an era, and this is the time of when music videos were at their peak, right? Mm-hmm. So I guess you want it to be... Um, over the top, if you will, and and, and maybe it was we're talking about a first time feature director, so yeah. maybe they thought, oh, we have a reputation to live up to. Maybe they we got hired because they're expecting us to to do something that's going to be a little bit more uh, off the beaten path, I guess. 
I don't know. Um, you know, again, kind of like Shoot to Kill, there's just there's red herrings all over the place. You know, who's gonna, who killed Dennis Quaid? So there's all these sort of just things to kind of throw the audiences off. I don't know if you noticed or not, but there's so many scenes of him drinking. Like, if, if he's just drinking, he's having a, a Coke, he's having a, a beer, he's having a water. It's just, it's like, okay, so which one of these, because you know he's been poisoned, right? Or, or no, no, you know he's been killed, right? He, they didn't say he's been poisoned in that first scene. Or did he? I, I can't remember. I mean, I think you're familiar enough with the film basis that you know he's been poisoned. Like, yeah. Even before the movie tells you. And so we have to see, so we have to get repeated scenes of him just kind of like, oh, is this going to be the part that's poisoned? Is this where he gets poisoned? I don't know. Uh, I couldn't help but notice, though, that, that his... Dennis Quaid is... I mean, for as talented as he is, I've always felt he's incre- overacts really bad in this movie. I mean, it's, mm. he's kind of like channeling uh, a Jack Nicholson-type persona. And I don't remember him ever being mm. that that huge, right? That over-the-top. He was more... I thought he was more understated. Maybe he's more understated as he's gotten older, I guess. Maybe. I, you know, like, go back to my critique of The Big Easy, where his accent is bad, and watching him on the new Netflix show... Or new-ish, uh, Happy Mary, whatever, which um, he plays the dad, and okay. I, I didn't find his acting to be. That's why I want to go back and watch Inner Space to see like uh, how is he in that movie? Because I, I mean, I like the movie, but watching it critically now is going to be a lot different than watching it for fun. He's as just, it, he's just sitting, came in out. Po- he's sitting in a pod inside of yeah. Martin Short, so he's not, he doesn't really have an opportunity, I guess, to be over the top. Um, I will say. As much as I'm not mocking Dennis Quaid, again, I find him. I think he's a terrific actor. I thought the best scenes in the film are the ones that are between uh, Dennis Quaid and Meg Ryan, especially you know, like when they first meet and and her room and stuff. Oh my God, am I where I think I am? Freshman girls' dorm. Does this get worse? What happened? Don't you remember? You were amazing. Oh no. Can't handle praise. Oh, I can't handle prison. I'm over 18. Oh, the mere fact that you have to mention that means that I better get dressed and haul my ass out. I was amazing fully dressed. Guess I had to go in there, huh? Yeah. Uh, now, wait a minute. I seem to remember a lot of drinks, a lot of bars, uh, a pass being made. Yeah, I made the pass. Yeah, incomplete. You were very gracious about turning me down. You said I was pretty, you said I was smart, and then you said something about rules and ethics, professors and co-eds, and and then something about alcohol impeding performance, all the while trying to make a graceful exit. Yeah, but I I didn't exit. No, you passed out. But what was funny is the later scenes that you have with them, like, they really take their time, like, they're kind of falling for each other, but yet... He's dying. Like you would think that it should be a little. He should be trying a little quicker and not wasting as much time with the girl. The the movie does a good job of setting up several different possible killers. Mm-hmm. You know, but yeah, I agree with you that if you only got twenty four hours to kill, no pun intended. Well, that'd be twenty four hours to die. But you're not going to sit around talking and you know just kind of catching up on hey what did you do last weekend oh yeah this was great it's you're probably going to want to get to find out who murdered you a lot sooner and there's i mean this movie is very the plot is very convoluted in a sense to where like all the subplots just like they kind of bog it down bog, bog the movie down a little bit but then when you find out who the eventual killer is you're like uh okay 
you that, know it, that yeah. and it kind of makes sense but there's so much else attached to this film that yeah it's 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 a quick 24 hours yeah and i mean and my watching it with a critical eye as well i think i it loses several points in my eye because there's a lot of like ridiculous action scenes there's a scene where they're being shot at with a nail gun and there's a fight scene where Dennis Quaid is fighting a guy who's fallen into a tar pit and then come back out and so he's covered in tar mm-hmm. while Dennis Quaid is fighting him I don't I dude we need to have a tar covered man I don't I don't feel it no no but you know what they say keep Austin weird yeah and so like I said I I will say, like you said, there was a lot of... The subplot, when you're taking that original movie, which is all about, like, a... Was it a uranium sale that the guy... Evan O'Brien plays, like, an insurance adjuster who just happened to, like you said, kept the receipt, right? Um, Whereas this one, they they give him credit for trying to come up with an original story around that. And they've got a great cast. Like you said, um, Charlotte Rampling, Daniel Stern. I'd never seen Jane Kaczmarek. I didn't realize she made movies ten years before Malcolm in the Middle. And, and 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 I think my wife pointed out that she would have liked to have seen more scenes between mm-hmm. Dennis Quaid and Jane Kaczmarek, who's, who's playing like his soon-to-be ex-wife. Yeah. There is a lot of dramatic heft there, and they don't they kind of waste that. I thought. Mm-hmm. And then Brian James, who you, we everybody recognizes him if you've seen, he always what? plays a great bad guy in, in a lot of movies. I mean, I think he was in Blade Runner, but I think of him from like Tango and Cash and some of those great '80s action movies. Um, I, I will say. We joke about the style of the film and, and how maybe it might be a little bit too stylish. Mm. I give them credit for whenever they do like the point of view, Dennis Quaid, like he's where he's poisoned and they kind of you know in and out of focus, candid angles and stuff like that. I don't know. I mean, is it you know that when you're dealing with an uh, an older movie and you're remaking it forty years later, that movie was more straight cut to the point, and mm. this one was like, okay, we're going to try something a little bit different. And I I will I will give them credit that that it. it like I said, it tries to be its own film. And the finale is even kind of open-ended. Like, you just see him kind of, he just, I mean, spoiler, he just kind of walks out of the police station. And so mm-hmm. you're like, well, I assume, is he just going to drop dead at, at some point in the next day? I think that's a very safe bet to assume. But I think the only kind of real, the big eye roll is how Dennis Quaid keeps Meg Ryan around with him. Oh, God, I forgot about that. Um, and I had something I actually missed, and you had pointed it out to me when we were discussing it after we both watched it, but he takes glue and glues himself to her, and yeah. it's just... It, In previous versions of this kind of movie, usually the, the the man and the woman are handcuffed together or yeah. something, and so she's doing some artwork for a sweater for a party, mm-hmm. and he sees glue, and then he just, oh, I'm going to glue my hand to your wrist. And it I'm like, silly. even if he's got Gorilla Glue or Super Glue, like, it's not going to hold that tight. Especially if he's running and sweating. Yeah. yeah. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, it does kind of, it loses a lot of, of Stylistic points? Well, I mean, it's, again, I'll say the one thing I like about it was the style, but it's mm-hmm. just, they, they throw kind of plausibility out the window. I don't know. I mean, I'll throw this in here now because it goes into it. It, The one line that I took from Roger Ebert's review, because, you know, I always try to work an Ebert or Siskel review into these shows. Um, But Ebert's review, uh, one line out of it says, everything is settled in an ending that seems contrived and is the movie's weakest link. So then where do you come down on a scale of one to 10 on DOA? Probably give it about a 5.5. Oh, wow. I mean, it's not bad. I don't think I'm going to be watching it again anytime soon although i probably should just to make more sense of what happens but i also 
I'll probably watch the original and take notes. Yeah. The original one, yeah, far superior. I, I came down with a three. Uh-huh. I thought it was just laughably far-fetched, eye-rolling dialogue, and just a silly motivation for the killer. I, it's, yeah, the, once, the, once, once, once the kind of the, the denouement comes up, mm-hmm. you're like, wait, what, that? That's why That's why Dennis Quaid got poisoned? Yeah, okay. and I will give it more points, I guess, uh, to, to raise my average up. Because of the band that we started the show off with that is featured in the movie as the bar band, Timbuk3. Timbuk3. Um, well, okay, we'll, look into, we'll just go right into that. They were, they're playing in the club. There's a scene where they, where they go to a club, and they're the ones that are playing. They were for, from Austin, Texas, and there was, it's a married couple, Pat and Barbara McDonald. And the song that you hear in the film is a song called Too Much Sex, Not Enough Affection. Well, you see them performing that one. That was on their second album, which is an album called Eden, Eden Alley from 1988. The song that we used at the beginning of the episode, which I preferred, <laughs> it's heard in the background when Dennis Quaid and Meg Ryan are standing in the alley outside the club. Life is Hard was, the, was on their, their 1986 debut album, which is Greetings from Timbuk3. Life is Hard is the second track on the album. The first track is The Future is So Bright, I Gotta no, Wear right. Shades. And when I was coming up with the idea for the Wonder Why podcast, which you and I co-host, which is all about one-hit wonders, Future So Bright is one of the first songs that I thought about you know, doing an episode on. We have not yet done so, but as soon as uh, Too Much Sex, Not Enough Affection came up in the movie, I'm like, oh my gosh, that's, that's Timbuk3. Oh yeah, I have the Greatest Hits album of Timbuk3. They so have a Greatest Hits album? They do. Oh, and it's wow. more than a single. I was saying it sounds like an EP, but I, I mean, we should maybe do that on on, uh, on Wonder Why coming up. Um, I will say the you know we, we always joke about again with sequel or remake potential. No, no, this movie's been told enough times. I didn't even realize it, but the Jason Statham movie Crank is more or less a remake of DOA because he's been slowly poisoned and he has to figure it out. I mean, they give it that spin that that he has to keep his heart rate above mm. a certain level, but yeah, it just just no more no more mm. DOA. Um, the, from a trivia standpoint, the original ending was actually shot on a Ferris wheel, but they edited the scene out, probably for the best. Maybe they couldn't find a way to get the tar pit in there or something. I don't know. Um, I listened to an interview uh, this afternoon with Dennis Quaid. He did an interview with uh, in front of a bunch of SAG actors. It's on YouTube. It's about an hour long. I was hoping, is he going to talk about DOA at all? The, 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 the moderator brings up his... 80s film career because he keeps trying to and he keeps changing the subject whenever she does and she brings up DOA repeatedly and I was like okay say something about DOA say something and really all he says is oh we shot it in Austin Texas it was 120 20 degrees some of the buildings didn't have air conditioning but what was interesting is he says oh well that's where Meg Ryan and I fell in love and I mentioned that because if you go in the IMDB trivia section of DOA it says uh, the two met on the set of this movie fell in love got married well, they had done Interspace the year before. If you go on the IMDb trivia page for Interspace, it says, oh, they met and fell in love and got married on this movie. Well, during this interview, Dennis Quaid clarifies for the host because he says, oh, DOA, that's where I met Meg. And the host says, oh, what about Interspace? And he says, no, no, no. I met her on Interspace. We were both dating other people. And then a year later when we did DOA, we were both single. And that's what did it. And so your host, Mike DeKalb, has submitted a request to IMDb to correct both of those trivia uh, notes for those two films. Well, I'll report back and see what they say. But yes, they, they, they fall in love. They, they're married on Valentine's Day 1991. Unfortunately, 10 years later in 2001, the couple divorced. 
Um, I did see again. We don't. I don't like to just crib everything off of IMDb, but they did have this factoid that I'm sure you probably saw as well. But it says. Throughout the story, the color in the film begins to drain to monochrome, representing the central character's deteriorating health as the poison takes hold. In the end, the film is in black and white, just like the beginning, presumably showing the flashback catching up to the story's timeline. If that's true, okay, I'll give them credit. That, that's a pretty awesome uh, device. I didn't even notice that. Hmm. I mean, did you see that the color was getting less saturated? Or I, did, I mean, at the, very, at the beginning and the end, yes. But oh, for sure. As, as the movie went on, no, I did not. You know, if you lose less than you, it's like looking at uh, samples of wall paint and you're like, oh, this is white. This is eggshell. This is off white. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. It's it's all white. Um, So then let's, okay, we'll just look at the box office. Like I said, it opened in March. It opened, the weekend it opened was, it finished number three, the box office. It made $3.75 million. Finished behind, uh, Good, Good Morning Vietnam was, was number two. And the number one movie that week, which also opened that week, was Police Academy 5, Assignment Miami Beach. The first without the goot. This is true. And one other film opens the same weekend, Little Nikita. That was Sidney Poitier again. Um, And the second week, it drops all the way to number six with the release of Biloxi Blues and Johnny B. Good, which I never really thought Johnny B. Good Good was number two when it opened. I I like that movie. I don't think, I didn't think anybody else did. I saw it in the theater, but uh, again, looking at the box office in the 80s, it seems like every movie more or less will open top six, you know, top seven. So audiences were going to the movies a lot more, maybe, and they said, what's new? Like when you're a kid, you had more variety. Yeah, yeah. When you're a kid, I remember when when we started renting videos. You go to the video store and be like, "Oh, what came out this week?" Yeah. And so I'm sure every movie in its first week of video release probably is at the top of the charts. It's because it's something different. Yeah, and it looks like nowadays, you know, there's only like one or two new movies, big movies that come out every week. Whereas yeah. back then, you know, you had three to five new movies. It seems. Oh yeah, and like you said, I mean, I, it's been kind of fascinating as we look at the box office of these movies and go, oh, that finished number three? That opened number four? And then the next week it's ten. Yep. You know, and in this kitchen, in this situation, like I said, it dropped from three to six and then it drops to tenth and that's when you get the new releases, Beetlejuice, Bright Lights, Big City, and The Seventh Sign. So it was only in theaters for a month and it simply made $12.7 million. Would you say it was DOA when it came to the theaters? The cricket noise, right? We still have the cricket noise, man. Right? That's good. Okay. Okay, Chad Smart. So to recap, we've got two thrillers. Is Disney on the right track? Is they, are they trying something different with the Touchstone banner? I don't know, but you just said on the right track, and now I wish on the right track was a Touchstone movie. I don't, I don't know that. Gary Coleman living in a train locker. Oh, my God. Okay. Likes to pick the ponies. Anyway, uh, no, I, I think Disney and Touchstone is starting off two th- or 2008, 1988 uh, a lot better than I would have expected based on the movies if you would have told me you know how well does shoot to kill do um you know it's a pleasant surprise um when we get to the end of 1988 i'm going to guess that it's going to be high up on my list of best touchstone movies for the year doa will be on my list when we get there we'll see where be one of them right yeah it will be a movie that's on there uh (laughs) yeah I, i i think touchstone is slowly carving out I don't even want to say they're carving out a niche they're just showing that they can make different styles of films they're not you're not getting the same thing every single time a touchstone movie comes out 
Yeah, I mean, like I said, we, we got nine comedies in a row in 1987, and we had Color of Money at the end of 86, and now we've got these thrillers. So, yeah, I'll give them credit. I, I mean, I, I'm curious to see... I mean, they haven't really delved into drama, which I think we're going to get into in 1988 Ooh, right. by the end of the year. A couple of soapy drama-type mm-hmm. movies. We'll see. But then Disney themselves, I always like to look and see what else have they put out in the same time period as these movies. Um, on March 25th, the week after DOA... We get a re-release of The Fox and the Hound, starring friend of the show Keith Coogan. Yeah, and friend of of a friend of the show Corey Feldman. Uh-huh. It finishes third on its opening weekend. It goes on to gross twenty three and a half million dollars in six weeks. So it makes ten million dollars more than DOA. Like it's it's a re-release of The Fox and the Hound. But it's such a good movie. Yeah, and then um, and on April fifteenth, Disney puts out their only live action movie of the of the entire year which is return to snowy river and i was looking more into that and i don't know how much like it says disney on it but these are it's an australian film Mm. the original movie the man from snowy river was made in australia it was distributed in america by fox and i I did read an interesting factoid um the original man from snowy river kirk douglas the late kirk douglas who just passed away as we record this show um, he starred in the film, and then when they made the second one, he said he, would, he wouldn't do it unless they would let him direct it. And they said, no, no, we've already got a director. And so he said, okay, screw it. And then, so his character, I believe, was played by Brian Dennehy in the remake. So Return to Snowy River, April 15th. It finishes fifth at the box office, and it kind of hovers on the brink of the top ten, and it leaves theaters after making $13.7 million in six weeks. So, I mean... That they're using at this time point, they're using these thrillers to kind of help make them money rather than, I mean, between the two, Fox and the Hound and Return to Snow River, I guess it's very similar to what Shoot to Kill and DOA made combined. But then again, Disney, uh, spoiler, Disney only makes one more movie, and it's an animated movie the rest of the year, whereas they crank out several touchstone mm-hmm. films. Um, we always kind of joke about there being a personal connection with anybody from these films. I don't know about you, if you have any, but I did have the pleasure of meeting Tom Berenger. This was in September of 2012 uh, at the mm-hmm. Arrow Theater in Santa Monica, which is a theater I go to quite often. Uh, they did a double feature of Major League and Major League Two, and I had just bought Major League on Blu-ray, mm-hmm. and it was he and also Corbin Burnson was there, and the writers, and so I got both of them to autograph my DVD, and I got a, a picture with uh, Tom Berenger. I'll have to post that on the social medias. Yeah, I, uh, I once had dinner with Sidney Poitier. Did you now? Yeah. I, I, I have no punchline for this, so let's just move on. <laughs> well, there's nowhere to move on to because we're about, to, we're about done. Um, on the next episode, we, we're, we move into the summer of 1988. We're gonna, we, we've got two movies. One of them is a, kind of a moderate hit, and the other one is a huge, huge box office smash. I'm looking forward to them because I don't know what they are. Well, if you want to find out, you'll just have to tune in next week as well. Uh, for my partner, he is Chad Smart. You can find him on Twitter, at Chad Smart. He's also the proprietor of the Positive Cynicism Podcasting Network, the PCBN. All of his shows are available on iTunes and wherever you find your podcasts. Uh, my name is Mike DeKalb. I am on Twitter, at Mike DeKalb. I also run the Out of Touchstone Twitter, which is simply at Out of Touchstone. We have a website, outoftouchstone.com. If you want to email us, it's out of touchstone at gmail.com. This is out of touchstone, and we're out of time. Out of Touchstone is a Honey Nerds production. For more information, visit outoftouchstone.com. 
like and subscribe on iTunes, Podbean, or wherever you find your podcasts. Thanks for listening. So, you're cool, I'm cool, we're cool, thank you, good night.